Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today on a warm day in a very quiet city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Neil Smedley. Neil is one of the founders of King Kobe Barbershop, a brand spanning numerous locations in the northeast including Leeds, Newcastle and York. Uh, Neil, welcome to the programme. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic uh, to have you, Neil. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about leadership and effective leadership at that. And that's really coming under the microscope at the moment, isn't it, with the COVID-19 outbreak and the need for business to respond to that. How has it been for yourselves in the services industry trying to navigate the last few weeks? I can imagine it's been quite disruptive. Yeah, it's it's been difficult. And I mean, I think if we're all sort of honest with ourselves, um, and it's one of the problems I have, when you hear so many people criticising leadership, especially at a local and national level, is that when something like this comes along, you have no idea what you're dealing with. It's unprecedented times. And to get your leadership style, whether it's personally or in terms of leading your team or your business, to get that right straight off the bat is incredibly difficult. Um, To give you an example of that, I remember, I was a man of it this morning, it's quite embarrassing. I remember three, four weeks ago now, when we first started hearing the news of the coronavirus coming out of China, um, we put a post up basically saying, don't worry, this is nonsense. This is so far away from us. This will blow over. Please don't be concerned. Please come into the shop. Um, and almost almost kind of jokingly mocking people that were taking it more seriously than that. So we got it wrong. We got our initial response to this crisis very, very, very wrong. So what we did to rectify that is when it became clear that this was far more serious than we'd given credit for, we then became the first barbershop, first barbershop chain, I think, in Leeds um, to shut down. We shut down um, at least three or four days before we were compelled to by the government. So from our point of view, it was correcting some bad leadership that we'd shown in the beginning. I think it's really um, interesting that you bring up uh, that example there, Neil, because um, leadership is about making mistakes, trying things, and then learning from the mistakes that you make, isn't it? And I think sometimes people can kind of lose sight of that, can't they? I think there's almost this fear of failure that's kind of manifested itself, especially in the the UK culture. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And I think it's it's a cliche to say, but I mean, look, we, we have cliches because of elements of truth and that's why it's a system firstly. And there can be no effective leadership without failure. Um, and in fact, I would go further and say there can be no effective leadership without almost kind of constant, consistent failure to, to, to some element. It's almost like driving a car, isn't it? You know, even when you want a straight line, you're constantly making minor adjustments to the wheel to get the car straight. And leadership's, <clears throat> leadership's the same thing. So we, as a business and me as an individual, certainly, um, we fail often. We fail constantly. What we try and do is just make sure that we fail forward um, and teach ourselves to be so self-aware that when those failures happen, we're at the very least able to recognise them take ownership of them and then correct them publicly. Mm. And if you were to give any advice to the next generation of emerging leaders, would you tell them to embrace failure rather than try and shy away from it? Yeah, without a doubt. I would, in fact, I would go on one step further. Not only should you embrace your failure, you should embrace your failures as publicly as you possibly can. Um, you know, again, me personally and others as a business, our failures have been quite public. And I think so they should be. I think it's very important for you to take ownership of your failures, to do that as publicly as possible. Um, one, it inspires trust in the people that are around you. It shows that you're human. People are more likely to trust in you when they can see that you're human. Um, and people are more likely to follow you in the future. You know, when, you, when you're when you so self-aware that you can say, do you know what, this was a mistake. 
this was a big mistake, but we're going to fix it. We're going to we're going to really try and nail down and fix it so it won't happen again. That inspires trust in people. And when we try and shy away from our failures individually and collectively, um, we don't inspire that level of trust. And that level of trust is needed if we're going to get people to invest in us as individuals and to invest in our concept as a business. Exactly. That self-awareness is so important, but it's also um, important to recognise that it's just about um, other people as well. And just like um, yourself, um, other people are also fallible, aren't they? They're also prone to making mistakes. And it's an important part of people management, recognising that too as a leader. Yeah, it is. And I think that's, that's one of the most difficult things. It's, um, I think maybe, I mean, I'm going to say it, one of the signs of maturity. There's, there's lots of signs of maturity, but certainly one of them would be the ability to recognise that we all need forgiveness in a leadership sense. Um, and we all need to be able to extend that forgiveness to others as well. Um, especially if we get things right before the people get them right, there's that sense of us, um, that kind of little bit of ego that eats away of us that almost feels boastful or gloatful about that. You know, And I think we all have that to some degree, but it, it's important to be able to recognize the mistakes of others as well and lend a helping hand to them You know, and realize that actually, despite the fact that we're all very different as businesses, we're all very different as leaders and very different as individuals, most of us do share the same kind of goals. Absolutely right. And I think as a leader, it's also important in terms of nurturing other people and getting the best out of them to create a culture of positivity and also make sure to reserve some room for praise as well, because praise is incredibly important and recognising people's achievements. Because as well as, of course, fear of failure, I think in um, our culture today, there is also a huge fear of criticism as well. Yeah, you're right. Um, I think look, praise is very important. It's very, very important. I'll push back against that just a little bit. Um, I do think, I think it's mainly a Western problem, but we've become we've become too entrenched, I think, sometimes in giving positive feedback regardless, um, mm. whether it's earned or not earned. Um, the positive feedback is very, very important. We all, we all thrive on that as individuals. But I do think we've perhaps lost sight a little bit of the use and the necessity of telling people difficult truths. Now, there's, there's ways in which you can do that, obviously. Um, but if you can articulate yourself in such a way, and you can articulate your business model in such a way, you're able to get across difficult truths to people, that's when you see people really, really begin to grow. Because people people know what's wrong with them. Businesses know what's wrong with them. You know, I know what's wrong with my business. I know what's right with it. What I don't want to hear from people is that kind of well-intentioned praise, but praise that perhaps isn't quite as truthful um, as it ought to be. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense, sir, Neil. I completely understand uh, where you're coming from. It's striking that balance, isn't it, between obviously letting people know that they are making mistakes, but also giving them that room to rectify that, learn from that, and then develop from there. Because that sort of development, uh, that journey that they have to go on, that's hugely important. And it's hugely important if one is also to become a good leader, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you, you, and you, ha- you have to have both. You have to have both. I mean, the reality is in life is that the truth is, the truth is rarely, um, I would just would say, the truth can often be overwhelmingly difficult to hear um, from a business perspective and from an individual perspective. Most, most truth is difficult or contains an element of difficulty to hear. When we can train ourselves to listen to that um, and, to, and train our mindset to be able to tune into that, we can turn that into a positive. Because the reality is without hearing the truthfulness about ourselves, about our businesses as well, and oftentimes you know, the truth about how we lead our people, um, without hearing that, we can't ever improve ourselves, which means we can't ever improve our businesses. So it's really, really important that, yes, we give positive um, praise as often as we possibly can, but it's also important we balance that off against the element of truth. When you get those two factors combined, that's when you see individuals and business really beginning to grow.
Certainly food for thought that I'm um, absolutely right. And um, we talk about, of course, your perspectives on uh, leadership being that way and um, how you've tried to sort of take that into your own leadership style as well, Neil. Um, what would you say are some of the influences behind your way of leading, as it were? Um, well, in terms of individuals or principles? Um, it can be individuals, but it can also be experiences as well. I think for me, it's been, some, I mean, my journey individually to becoming self-aware probably took a lot longer than most other people. Um, it was very difficult to, I found it difficult to be self-reflective. Um, like most people, especially in my early 20s, I wanted to highlight the positives of my character and, and downplay the negatives. And what that does is it creates an illusion. Um, and it creates an illusion that unfortunately you yourself begin to buy into. And it means that when the real difficulties come, you're not often as prepared as you should be. Um, I began to listen to a guy called Jordan Peterson about four or five years ago now, who's um, a Canadian psychology professor. And his philosophies really sort of changed my life and changed the way in which I went about fixing me as an individual and the way I went about leading my business. Now, his main philosophies are all about kind of self-awareness, personal responsibility, collective responsibility, really drumming down on, on the truthfulness of who you actually are, who, what your business actually is, rather than what it is you want to present to people. Um, so um, if you could essentially maybe go back in time, a bit more of an abstract question this, Neil, but if you could speak yeah. to yourself, like say 10, 15 years ago, based on the experience that you've had, what leadership qualities would you tell the younger you to embrace? I would tell them people to be more decisive, um, and to live more deliberately. One of the mistakes I made as a younger person, and certainly one of the mistakes we made with our business very early on, is that we weren't decisive enough. We weren't deliberate enough. Um, and it cost us. It cost us daily, and it cost me daily as well in, in my early 20s. So I think if, and obviously when you live deliberately and when you, you make decisions faster, that opens you up to making mistakes. And that's a very scary thing, and that's why we don't do it. But um, but one of one of my big heroes is Bob Dylan, and he has a line in one of his songs that says, "He that gets hurt will be he who stops," and that's that's always stuck with me. Um, I would rather make a decision based on principles that I believe in and be wrong, but be decisive and learn from that, than to damage myself or my integrity or the integrity of my business by not making a decision a decision fast enough. And, you know, I think that's incredibly sound advice him as well there, Neil. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time on today's programme, but before we do um, go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for King Kobe and what you hope to achieve in that time as well, particularly coming out of the other side of this outbreak. Well, I think the reality is, is that the next 12 months for, for King Kobe as a business and for most small businesses, it's going to be difficult. There's no two ways about that. Um, I do think the government has responded incredibly well to this. I do think there are positives, but we can't disguise the fact that it's going to be very, very difficult. We, um, I think, are going to be okay. We're quite fortunate. We provide a service. We provide a service that's needed, um, and we anticipate that once we open our doors, our, our customers will come flooding back in. What it has done for us is encouraged us to look at the back end, if you like, so we can put ourselves into a state of, of preparedness that we perhaps haven't done this time to make sure that we're really ready for when these things strike. But I do think as much as it's going to be a difficult time, there are going to be some amazing opportunities out there um, for small businesses, really, really incredible opportunities. Um, it just depends on, on whether you're in a position to grab them and whether you, you know, your mindset will allow you to, to see them for what it is. Um, but certainly, if you can get past the next 12 months, then you've got a business that's incredibly resilient and one that will no doubt see you through the rest of your life. I um, think um, it's 
a very, very good positive mindset that you've uh, got there, Neil, looking to the future, because you are absolutely right. There are going to be opportunities for business as well as challenges. And business has to be creative. It has to be innovative and it has to adapt in order to be able to hit the ground running on the other side and really take advantage of those opportunities that will be there. Um, yeah, absolutely. It certainly does. Um, Neil, I've got to say, it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on today's programme. And what I think would be brilliant for the listeners is to perhaps have you back on in a few months' time to look at what we said retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes have been borne out and how business is seizing on those opportunities. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. No, no problem at all. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'd love to come back on in a few months. No problem. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. Thanks, Neil. Um, coming Thanks, up next, take, care. Um, take care, Neil. Uh, coming up next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, as well as scoring over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, Sir Jeff remains to this day the only man to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a Football World Cup. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley, 54 long years ago. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Jeff and that's coming up next. Uh, we're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre, can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's 
that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the talent of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence. On me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn for you and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was 
quite ruthless about him and his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learnt over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment? I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games, before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think, in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games. And I probably didn't quite replicate my, my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay, he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen. So mm-hmm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, Jeff, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. 
Well, I, I, there's some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and say, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, well, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe 
uh, it has a, a helpful effect. But I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, the player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely—you've mm. got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, you know, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they—they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again it's absolutely astonishing astonishing and do you think could you imagine uh sir alf or even ron greenwood managing teams today yes i think so i think yes no Mm. no question at all i think they uh ron greenwood yeah the answer straightforward answer is yes um (laughs) the straightforward answer is yes i can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that, struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were, I was very fortunate and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that, so many. Yeah, so many. And that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. Uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. 
and there was nobody. And I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was. A big part. I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course, but without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking—if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single minded. Uh, Single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation and I think that's you completely focus you're always thinking about uh, things thinking about improvements and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful Excellent well Jeff on that point thank you very much for joining us today you're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.